Good afternoon, ladies. Thank you all for being here for our study this afternoon. Um, before we dive into our lesson, I just want to give everybody a quick word of warning. If Cody ever asks you for topic suggestions, don't do it. It's a trap. I suggested this topic because I wanted to hear a lesson on this, not because I wanted to present a lesson on this. So, fair warning. If you hear from Cody, you can tell him I said so. <laughs> the topic of the hour for both the men and the women is conflict resolution. We are going to hone ours in on one specific area that seems to plague a lot of congregations and a lot of women in the church. When we think about conflict and when we think about the conflicts that we face in the church, it is very reflective of what we see in society. In society as a whole, there is disconnection. There is people that are disgruntled. There's a lot of division. The church is supposed to be a safe haven from all of that. The church is supposed to be a place of unity and peace to give us shelter from all of the division and disunity that we face out there in the world. And that is very often exactly what the church is. It is a haven where we can come together in unity, enjoy fellowship, have common ground, but that's not always the case. It is a beautiful thing when we get to enjoy that kind of unity. David said that in Psalm 133, and that's been quoted several times by different speakers. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for sisters to dwell together in unity. I like using the girl words when we read verses together. Colossians 2 and verse 2 tells us that it is God's desire that we be knit together and that that is a source of comfort to us as Christian women in this world that is so full of problems. And so our hearts should be knit together as sisters in Christ. I don't want to ask for a show of hands here, but I'm just going to venture a guess that probably every one of us has seen a disruption of unity in a congregation that is centered around a conflict between one or two families, between a tug of war, a difference of opinion, something like that between two families in a congregation that just, are we having sound issues again? <laughs> this needs to be tweaked a little bit. Okay. Anyways, we have probably seen that or experienced it ourselves, and it's a very uncomfortable thing. But I just want to ask a question, throw it out for discussion, and, and I'm going to have several discussion questions, and I want people to please speak up if you have something to put into the discussion. Why do you think this happens so often with mothers in a congregation? Why do you think there are so many conflicts between the mamas? Anybody have any thoughts on that? Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. That's one big one is just differences of opinion on how things should be done. Yes. That's a very good point. We tend to tear each other down. Yes. Definitely could be. Anybody else? If I don't see a hand, just speak up. Absolutely. 
We're going to talk a little bit more about that too. <laughs> I think a lot of it centers around all of those things, but I think you could probably boil it all down to parenting is hard. Motherhood is hard. It's a difficult thing. Um, we have a lot to deal with. There is There are so many conflicting emotions. Um, there is so much joy involved in parenting and having children. You think about Sarah and you think about the decades of waiting for her little boy to arrive and how full of joy she was at that and then how quickly there was fear and anxiety because she had to deal with Hagar and she was trying to protect Isaac's position, his God-given position. So immediately you see joy and then you see fear. You see laughter and anxiety. You see challenges and triumphs. There is so much involved in parenting. Any mother in here has probably at some point echoed the words of Matthew 17, verse 15. Have mercy, Lord, for my son is a lunatic. <laughs> that is my favorite parenting verse right there. <laughs> that is, there is so much anxiety and difficulty involved in parenting, but the Lord brought us together into one body. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16. Because there is some sense in which we need to do this together. He has called us together into one body to be his family, the family of God. The mommy wars are a tool of Satan. And he uses that tool to disrupt the unity of a congregation instead of helping it to grow. And to isolate mothers, all of the mamas in the congregation that need to be insulated against all of the world's ideas of what parenting should be, of what the family should be, of what womanhood is, he uses the mommy wars to isolate and divide rather than bring us together so that we can help each other in this God-given task that we have. So for just a few minutes, I want to talk about the causes of the mommy wars. I don't want to rest here for too long because we want to dive into the solutions more than the causes, but I do want to talk about the causes just for a minute. I see three major causes of these disruptions. Number one is arrogance, okay? When we become very opinionated in matters of judgment, we're probably dealing with an arrogance issue. So here's another discussion point. What are some of those areas of judgment that people become highly opinionated about and that can end up dividing the sisterhood in a congregation? Any thoughts on that? And just throw them out there. You don't have to raise your hand because I may or may not see you. Schooling. <laughs> Homeschooling. Public schooling. Private schooling. How you educate your children can be a highly divisive thing in a congregational setting. What else? Behavior issues. How, what children are allowed to do and not allowed to do. What the expectations are. Discipline. What else? Health choices, vaccines or no vaccines. Oh boy, you just threw a stick of dynamite in the room. <laughs> there are so many of these. Dating or courtship. Technology is a huge one. There's a lot of disagreement about when to introduce technology, how much is okay, what are the boundaries and limits. There are tons and tons and tons of issues that we as parents have to make decisions about. I would guess that almost everybody in here has an opinion about at least one or two of these things, maybe all of them. Some of those opinions are highly educated, arrived at after a ton of research and study, 
and getting advice and counsel. Others have been arrived at more casually. My mom did it this way. My pediatrician recommended it. But when you get right down to it, no matter how you got there, they're all still opinions. They are all still your opinions and feelings about how to handle things for your family. Now, I looked up the word opinion in one of my Bible apps, and I found it three times in the Bible. The book of Job. Now, this is King James Version. In other versions, it may appear more often. But in the book of Job, it's used three times by Elihu. He is one of Job's three friends who were miserable counselors. He said, I will declare my opinion. Just a short time later in Job 42 and verse 7, we find God saying, greatly displeased with you and your three friends because you have not spoken of me what is right. Now, what was Elihu rebuked for? What was God displeased about? Was he displeased that this man had an opinion? He wasn't displeased that Elihu had an opinion. He was displeased that Elihu presented his opinion as fact, as an absolute, as this is the way it is. And his opinion was not just an opinion. We can cross the same lines when we grab our opinions, even if we arrived at them very carefully, when we grab our opinions and present them as fact. That is one major of wars between women in a congregation. Secondly, another cause of the mommy wars is insecurity. Now, I feel like insecurity and arrogance go together very closely because insecurity often looks a lot like arrogance because when we're insecure we tend to nitpick and criticize other people and a lot of times somebody may look like they're being very arrogant when really they're really struggling and they're having a really hard time and so they're nitpicking and criticizing others and so those two kind of go together and then a third cause of mommy wars no shocker is gossip all those different things that we have strong opinions about tend to be the things that we gossip about and we tear other people down about and we criticize others vocally about. And so these are the three big causes that I see. You could probably add some things to the list, some things that you've seen or experienced. But those three, and whether you're talking about mothers in a congregation or just in general between families in a congregation, those are the things that are going to spark off some conflict. So what do we do about it? Because that's the real important thing. We need to know a little bit about what causes it so that we can ask ourselves, what am I doing that contributes to this problem? Am I doing, do I have attitudes that are causing a problem? But the most important thing that we need to consider is what do we need to change in order to resolve these conflicts? How do we avoid mommy wars? How do we resolve the ones that are active and raging in the congregation and keep new ones from cropping up. So very first, I want to address the group of women who thought they were going to get off scot-free in this lesson. <laughs> the older women in the congregation are not exempt. Turn with me to Titus chapter 2. I'm going to ask somebody to read Titus chapter 2, verses 3, 4, and 5 for me in just a second. In this context, Paul 
is giving instructions to Titus about the conduct and role of both older men and older women in a congregation because these groups have an incredibly important role. Does anybody have that for me? Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 3. Okay, thank you for reading. So be very practical here for just a second, okay? I have four kids. Our home is not always a haven of peace and unity. My kids get into the occasional conflict, and they're not real sweet about it. They look real sweet, but they're not. Um, They get into verbal warfare. Occasionally they have an actual throwdown. They have conflict. I can tell you that the very biggest conflicts that arise in our household, in our family, happen when one kid is trying to be the boss of another kid, and it doesn't work out very well. The way it happens in our household is Trinity walks in and says, Annabelle, you need to clean up the mess you left in the bathroom. And Annabelle's natural response is, you're not the boss of me. Go look at your side of the room. It's a mess too. That's the way it goes down in my house. Now, picture that in a congregational setting, okay? Who has the role of teaching the younger women? In Titus, the older women, okay? I'm mom. If I walk in and say, go clean up the mess you left in the bathroom, the answer is yes, ma'am, and it gets done. If two kids try to be the boss of each other, conflicts arise. We see the same thing in the congregation. When older women don't take the role they were given by God to instruct and admonish younger women, and when younger women step in and presume to instruct and admonish each other, you have conflict that's going to arise. Young mothers don't take correction from other young mothers very well. Even a little bit older mothers don't take correction from a little bit older mothers very well. But if an older woman who has raised children, comes to me to admonish me, I am much more likely to receive that patiently. It may sting a little, but it's not likely to cause the kind of conflict it would if it was a woman who's in my same phase of life. Mommy wars are uncomfortable, but they are avoidable. These things don't have to happen. And when everybody takes the role that God gave them, they are less likely to happen. Older women have an extremely important role in the congregation of influencing the younger women in how they raise their children and how they structure their lives and is a role that they are uniquely qualified for. Why do you think God instructed older women to fill this role? What are some of your thoughts on that? Experience, exactly. They have a tremendous amount of experience. Think about Peter. For example, I think he's a great example of one who grew tremendously over his walk with the Lord. When we meet Peter as a young man, he is very brash. He's very opinionated. He always has something to say, and he usually gets in trouble for it. Okay, And then we meet him as an older man who is now an elder in the Lord's church. And you read 1 Peter 5 and verse 3 where he tells other elders, don't rule as overlords, but be an example. You see a completely different tone 
you see a completely different attitude as he has matured in the faith and matured in his years of service. What other reasons might God have given this command specifically to older women? Yeah, that's a good point. They know what they received well, what worked, and what didn't necessarily work or help when they were in the shoes of the younger women. Anybody else? That's very true. There's, there is a measure of authority that goes with an older woman with a gray head. Um, experience, a knowledge of God's word. Um, you can go through a program like Southwest, okay? A woman can go through this program for two years, study the Bible intensely. Her use of God's word, her knowledge of God's word, is not going to surpass the woman who has studied and walked with the Lord for 20 or 30 or 40 years. You, there, there are some things that just take time, and really knowing God's word in practical everyday life is something that years of experience teaches a woman, and that gives her a voice with younger women. Um, what? Anybody have anything else on that? Yes, ma'am. That's a very good point. I might nitpick a lot of details in another woman's life that an older woman would look at and say, don't sweat the small stuff. These are the things that are actually important. This is something you want to address. Yes, I see a couple of hands. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. Yeah, and absolutely, and that's uh, that brings us to our next point because I want to circle back and look at the question, are all older women given this role? Does every gray-headed or older woman have this role? No. The scriptures give some very specific criteria for a woman who would be a teacher and admonisher of younger women. And older women have the responsibility to prepare themselves for that role. Much as a man should prepare himself for eldership or prepare himself the way Titus has outlined, Older women have to be ready to take this role. Um, women have to be all of the things that the older men should be, sober, reverent, temperate, sound in the faith. They should be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. A woman must be those things before she can instruct anybody else. Yes, ma'am, did you have something?
Right. Women have an important leadership role in the church. It is not a leadership role over men, but God has given some important leadership roles specifically to women. So being an older woman, somebody turn and read Proverbs 16.31. That's going to be our final verse for this section, but Proverbs 16.31. I have received some wonderful, life-changing advice and admonishment from older sisters in Christ. I have also received some very bad, unbiblical advice from older sisters in Christ, from women who have sat in a pew for decades but not grown in the faith. Just being an older woman does not qualify you to speak. And for younger women, just going to an older woman is not enough. You have to be looking for the right kind of older woman. Does somebody have Proverbs 16.31 for me? Thank you. So it says gray hair is a crown of glory if it is stained in the pursuit of righteousness. Okay? Just being an older woman does nothing for you. It's the righteousness. It is being the picture that God painted of what a woman is to be. So younger women, when you seek out an advisor, when you seek a woman and ask her to look into your life, to look into your family, Look for the one that exemplifies 1 Peter chapter 3. Look for those women in the congregation that are examples of generational faithfulness. What do I mean by that? You see women who have raised faithful children, whose children have raised faithful children. Yes, ma'am. Yep, there's definitely some wisdom to waiting, but there's also a time to speak up. And when you consider sometimes the wars that go on between women, between younger women in a congregation, there are times when an older woman needs to step in, whether she's wanted or not. (laughs) It's a dangerous thing. It is, but it is the role that God has given. Older women can't sit back and watch the unity of a congregation go down the tubes because two families have a conflict when they could step in and speak to those young mothers and say, hey, hold on, there's a problem here. Are you behaving like a Christian? And we're going to talk more about that in just a second. But you can't always wait until you're asked because sometimes young women don't ask. (laughs) Yes, ma'am. You were the lucky one. God knows what to do. When you become self-sufficient, you get 
it's very uncomfortable and it, it bleeds out into everything in the congregation when there is conflict. To what Mama Lee was saying, it's very true that young women should be asking. That's part of our role, is we should be open to the admonishment of our older sisters in Christ. It's very important that we invite that, and we're not very good at that sometimes. I don't necessarily love being critiqued. I don't necessarily love being told what I'm doing wrong. But if I genuinely want to please the Lord, and he has given me these older women that can advise me, that can admonish me according to the scriptures, I should be seeking that out. But if there's sin in my life, and an older woman knows it, if she can look because of her years of wisdom and see what Carly is doing with her kids is headed for disaster, she has a God-given role to speak to that, not to wait for the disaster and then say, yeah, I kind of saw that one coming. Sorry, I didn't say anything. That's not the role God has given. God has said, you take the risk. Think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. What did the two highly religious men do? Pass by on the other side. They were not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. Do we ever do that to each other? Do we ever see a disaster in the making and hang back and not say anything because we don't want to get caught in the middle? We don't want to be the bad guy that calls it out. If God has given you that role to speak up, to admonish. Admonishment is not an easy thing to dish out. It's not an easy thing to take. It's probably harder to dish it out. It is probably much harder to be the admonisher. It's why the woman who is going to admonish has to have her spiritual senses. She has to be ready to take that role. Yes. Yeah, and you see that with the Apostle Paul. When he writes to a congregation, he almost always points out positive and then says, okay, now here's the problem. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely correct. Okay, so let's shift gears and talk to the younger women now who seem to very often be at the heart of the conflict, particularly young mamas. So we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 at this time. And these are all um, very basic tenets and practices for Christian life. They're not anything new. Um, but we are going to discuss them in the context of maintaining peace in a congregational setting, maintaining peace between the mothers and families in a congregation. So read with me Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 32. Paul writes, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you. 
with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So Paul gives us several areas of our lives that if we want to maintain peace and unity in a congregation, we have to clean up. Number one, we have to clean up our speech. We talk about this a lot. We talk about it more than we do it, <laughs> to be honest, in a lot of situations. We talk too much about the things that we need to be doing instead of putting them into practice. So first, he addresses lying. Now, what form might this take in the discussion that we're having right now? In the discussion we're having right now, what form might lying take? I don't see there being a lot of malicious lying between mothers in a congregation. The form that I think it probably takes more often than anything else is when we present ourselves, our children, our marriages, our families as being a whole lot better than what they are in real life. We paint a deceptively rosy picture of what it looks like to be me and what it looks like to walk in my shoes, my perfect family. That's not being honest with our sisters in Christ. Now, there's a delicate balance between hanging all your dirty laundry out there for everybody to see and painting that deceptively rosy picture. And the word for that balance is being genuine. We can be genuine with each other, be honest about who we are, about who our families are, about what our strengths and weaknesses are. We do not have to be fake. The Bible uses the word hypocrisy a lot. And we think of that word in a certain context of the way it gets used in our culture and society, but biblically that word is very akin to the word acting, being an actor, putting on a show. If you're putting on a show for your sisters in Christ, then you're not being very honest with them. You're borderline being deceptive. And so Paul says, put that away. Clean that out of your speech. Don't paint a picture of yourself and your family that is not accurate. Secondly, he deals in verse 31 with anger, wrath, clamor, and bitterness. Connect each of those to your speech. Okay, Anger, that is outbursts of wrath. Uh, clamor, that's bickering, nitpicking, arguing, arguing, being easily annoyed with each other. That probably fits our discussion the very best. Both of those relate to how you talk to other people, okay? How you approach another person in a moment of discomfort or frustration. But wrath, that one's a little bit different. Wrath is the boiling rage that builds up inside of you. It leads to anger and clamor. Wrath has to do not so much with how you talk to other people, but how you talk to yourself about other people. Because how you're talking to yourself, your internal dialogue about your sisters in Christ, is what leads to the bitterness and the clamor and the outburst that cause disruption and disunity in the congregation. So we need to clean up our angry speech our internal dialogue included. He addresses corrupt words, evil speaking, and malice. And these, this same language is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8 and in Titus chapter 3 and verse 4. And in both of those contexts, it's described as part of our old way of life. 
this kind of stuff has no place in the life of a faithful Christian woman. We should not be noticing and talking about and highlighting each other's faults and failings. We should definitely not be sharing and maliciously sharing each other's faults and failings. So Paul gives us all of these things that we need to clean out of our speech, and then he gives us the alternative in verse 29. He tells us that we need to be speaking words that edify. And in telling us that, he, he's going to take this thing to a whole other level because my words don't just have to be true. I can speak the truth. I can keep lying words from coming out of my mouth, but that's not good enough. They don't just have to be right. I can be right in everything I say, but Paul says that's not good enough either. Not only do your words have to be true and be right, they have to be edifying. Edifying is the act of one who promotes another's growth in Christian wisdom, piety, happiness, and holiness. That's a pretty serious charge. That is really challenging when you think about only speaking words that are edifying, that will help somebody else be a happier, holier Christian. That's the challenge that he gives to us. You can jot down a couple of cross-references, Romans 14, 19, and 15, 2. We're not going to look those up right now. Mommy wars may continue to plague congregations unless and until we clean up our speech. But it's not enough just to clean up our speech, to come clean up what's coming out of us. We also have to clean up our attitudes. Look at verse 32 with me. Ephesians 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So we need to be kind. That relates to how we act toward each other. In Matthew 11, 30, Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the same word. We need to go easy on each other. That's what Jesus showed us by giving us an easy burden. So I can go easy on you even when you're wrong, and you can go easy on me. We need to be tenderhearted. So where kindness relates to how we act, tenderhearted relates to how we feel about each other. Throughout the scriptures, and particularly in the epistles, you're going to find a lot of admonitions from God for us to feel a certain way. We do have control over our feelings, no matter what the world tells us. We are in charge of how we feel. If you don't feel tenderhearted toward your sisters in Christ, God says you need to change that. He has given you all of the admonitions. He's given you the tools. It's your job to change how you feel about your sisters. 1 Peter 3 and verse 8 says, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as sisters, be tenderhearted, be courteous. God wants us to feel correctly and to behave correctly toward our sisters in Christ. And then he says to be forgiving. What do you think the emphasis is on that? Be forgiving. Is God going to forgive us if we don't forgive others? He's not. He's told us that plainly. But if we dig deep, what are the implications here? You see, the way, the way I see this unfolding is God says be kind. We say, amen, absolutely, be kind, for sure. He says, be tenderhearted, feel, feel good about your sisters in Christ. Amen, we can do that. And then he says, be forgiving. That means they're wrong. You see, I can be kind and I can be tenderhearted, 
But when somebody's wrong, when somebody's not just a little wrong, but they are dead wrong, they're acting wrong, they're thinking wrong, they're talking wrong, all that kind tenderheartedness kind of goes on the back burner. I give myself a free pass to not behave right because they're not behaving right. You see, this is where the rubber meets the road. Kind and tender-hearted, okay, that's all great, until she's wrong. And when she's wrong, then I don't have to be right either. <laughs> this is how wars erupt in a congregation. Forgiveness, that means that your sister is wrong, so wrong that it warrants forgiveness, that she might be in sin, and yet we're commanded to be kind and tender-hearted, to continue in that. When you tie all of this, when you tie Ephesians chapter 4, the last part of the chapter, with the whole book of Ephesians, you see Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, where Paul gives, has this beautiful discussion of fellowship, of redemption, of the church coming together to glorify God. And then you see five, 4, 5, and 6, where he says, since all of that is so wonderful, since God has done so much, this is the way you need to act and behave. You look at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4. We all know those seven ones, those pillars of doctrinal unity. But the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4 has to do with relational unity, with how we treat each other. Because we can have unity in doctrine, but still treat each other like trash. And then there's no unity in the congregation. You have to have both together, doctrinal unity and relational unity, in order for a congregation to function as God intends. So look at the beginning part of Ephesians chapter 4. I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Lowliness. Connect that with Philippians 2 and verse 4. Let each esteem other better than herself. We should be esteeming our sisters in Christ. We should be looking for what our sisters are doing right that we would like to imitate. We tend to look at what they're doing wrong and nitpick what they're doing wrong, but we should be looking for the good in each other. We should be looking and noticing what the other one is doing right. Gentleness. Psalm 18 and verse 35 says, Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. Could anybody say that about you as a sister in Christ? Has your gentleness made your sisters better? Has it made them great? Has the way that you've interacted with your sisters in Christ lifted them up and helped them along in this Christian walk? And then he addresses long-suffering, bearing with one another. I'll tell you, I am not always very good at this. Long-suffering is difficult because it means we have to suffer. We have to put up with each other. What I tend to do, rather than suffering with people, is I just quietly distance myself. Maybe I sit over on the other side of the auditorium. If somebody's difficult to be around, if I find them annoying or obnoxious, I just try not to be around them. That's not what God has called me to. He has called me to put up with them. He has called me to suffer long with the things that aren't as pleasant about my sisters in Christ because the fact is, not everything about me is pleasant either. I am not always the easiest person to deal with. 
Finally, Paul says we need to clean up our goals. What is the goal? Is it just for us to have a fun club, a fun girls club? No, our goal is unity. Unity as the body of Christ. We are to be endeavoring for it. It's to be the thing that we strive for every day of our lives. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 15, Paul wrote, He died for us, that they which live should not henceforth live to themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Jesus died so that we could be brought together into one body, so that we could resolve the conflicts that will arise when there are multiple people, multiple families in any given setting. There will be conflicts. Whether or not those conflicts explode into wars depends on how we behave as Christians. My best friend is very fond of saying it takes two hands to clap. Okay, think about that in the context that we're talking about today. If one person is not acting right, that's not a conflict. That's a personal problem. A conflict arises when the other person engages in wrong behavior. For my part, I can behave in the way that God has called me to behave as a Christian woman. And if somebody else is having a moment, they're going to have a moment. They may repent of that moment, and then we'll be back on track, where if I engage in warfare, things disintegrate further and further, and I become a tool of Satan. Our goal should be what was expressed in Judges chapter 20 and verse 11. Israel was facing a terrible, tragic thing that one of the tribes had done. And it says that Israel came and came together and stood as one man to face that evil. That should be our goal as sisters in Christ in our congregations to stand together as one in the middle of this world that we live in. Thank you, ladies, for being here this afternoon. I pray that each one of us will strive to fulfill our role and to be unified. Thank you, Carly, for your lesson. It was very good. Um, we will have about a 10-minute break, and then we'll be meeting back um, in the auditorium.